Route 66. Today we continue our journey through the Bible from the book of Genesis all the way through the book of Revelation. We're cruising through these 66 books, one book each Sunday. And this morning we are ready to study the 18th book, the book of Job. So let's just dive right in, beginning with the structure. How does the book of Job fit into the overall structure of the Old Testament? Well, as we've noted throughout the Route 66 series, the Old Testament consists of three major sections, 17 historical books, five poetical books, and 17 prophetical books, 39 Old Testament books in total. Having completed now the 17 historical books, the five books of the Torah or the Law of Moses and the 12 books of history, today we begin our study of the five poetical books, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. The book of Job is perhaps the oldest book in all of the Bible. The setting is in the period of the patriarchs, probably somewhere around Genesis 11 and 12, certainly not long after the time of Abraham. A number of factors support that as being true, and I've included them there in your lesson notes, but we're not going to take the time to mention them right here. The Hebrew title for this book and its main character, Yab, has two possible meanings. If derived from the Hebrew word for persecution, it means persecuted one. If derived from the Arabic word, meaning repent, then it means repentant one. And certainly either one of those meanings would apply to Job and to this book. Now the author of the book of Job is anonymous. As pointed out in the video and chart, more than likely the anonymity is intentional. Job holds a very unique place in the Bible. Set outside of Israel with a cast of non-Israelite characters, the focus is on the universal and the timeless questions that are raised by Job's suffering. And it's a book then for all people in all places at all times. Now with that overall structure in mind, then let's move on to the story once again, we are deeply indebted to the Bible Project for their excellent overview of the storyline of Job in the video clip that we watched to begin today's lesson. And as usual, I've reproduced the Job chart across the inside pages of your lesson notes for your own further study later at home. As the chart indicates, the book of Job easily divides itself into four parts. The first is the prologue, chapters 1 through 2. And since this first section of the book is so unique, I felt it best that we just read it together. So earlier I asked you to turn in your Bible to Job chapter 1. Follow along now as we read these two chapters together. We begin with chapter 1 and verse 1. In the land of Uz there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. 
One day, the angels, the sons of God, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan, or Satan, as you heard it in the, in the video, also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my certain servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Ha! Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You've blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. One day, when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabaeans attacked and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from heavens and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword. I'm the only one who's escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them and they are dead. And I'm the only one who's escaped to tell you. That was a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. <laughs> At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Chapter 2, verse 1. On another day, the angels, the sons of God, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them to present himself before him. And the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. Skin for skin! Satan replied, A man will give all he has for his own life, but now stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, he's in your hands, but you must spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, Are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die! And he replied, You're talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. When Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, and Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite, 
heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him, because they saw how great his suffering was. Which brings us to the second part of the book. Job and Friends, chapters 3 through 37. This is the bulk and the heart of the book. And although Job's three comforters reach wrong conclusions, they are, after all, his friends. Of all who know Job, they're the only ones who come to his aid. And when this seven-day silence is broken by Job himself, a three-round debate follows. And I mean, at least these friends would openly confront Job. They weren't talking behind his back, okay? Eliphaz's argument is, if you sin, you suffer. Bildad's argument is a little more direct. You must be sinning. Zophar's argument is just flat out rude <laughs> and blunt. You are sinning. And Job's rebuttal of his friend's arguments actually lead him to become a little self-righteous. In fact, Job 32 verse 1 tells us, So these three men stopped answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. And it's at this point that a fourth friend, Elihu, appears on the scene with a totally different argument than the first three because he says, in essence, you're being tested and you're being purified by God. Which brings us to the third part of the book, and that's Job and God. <laughs> For chapters 38 through 41, God himself comes and ends the debate. I love the way, by the way, the message paraphrases Job 38 verses 1 through 3. And now, finally, God answered Job from the eye of a violent storm. He said, why do you confuse the issue? Why do you talk without knowing what you're talking about? Pull yourself together, Job. Up on your feet. Stand tall. I have some questions for you, and I want some straight answers. And Job listens as God reveals His power and wisdom as the Creator and the Sustainer of the universe. And Job's response to God, Job 40 verses 4 and 5, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, I have no answer twice, but I will say no more. And then Job listens again as God reveals His sovereign authority and His power to control even the uncontrollable. And He responds then in confession and repentance in Job 42 verses 2 through 6, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You ask, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you shall answer me. My ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Though I despise myself, therefore I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. All of which leads to the fourth part of the book, which is the epilogue. The balance of chapter 42 tells us of Job's full restoration to health and prosperity. These verses, I think, sum it up best. After Job pr- 
prayed for his friends. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> Pause there for just a moment. God actually comes to his four friends and says, you guys are wrong. <laughs> and you should go to Job because I've asked Job to pray for you. <laughs> I think that's pretty cool. And Job prays for his friends and it says the Lord restored his fortunes and gave him twice as much as he had before. The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the former part. After this, Job lived 140 years. He saw his children and their children to the fourth generation. And so Job died an old man and full of years. And that's the way the book of Job ends. So the prologue, Job and friends, Job and God, and then the epilogue. That's the storyline of Job. Which brings us to the Savior. Each Sunday as we focus on one of these 66 books of the Bible, one of our priorities is to point out where and how Jesus is to be found in the narrative of that book. Now please remember, there's but one grand central theme, a single scarlet thread if you will, that runs all the way through all of Scripture and that is salvation through God's Son, Jesus Christ. And so here in Job, we want to stop, look, and listen for the Savior. Where and how does Jesus Christ appear in the narrative of Job? Well, we need to look no further than Job 19, verses 25 through 27, where Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end He will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see Him with my own eyes. How my heart yearns within me. Amazing! <laughs> right here in the middle of the book, in the midst of all of Job's suffering and hardship, he speaks prophetically, I know that my Redeemer lives. The hope of resurrection life in Jesus Christ, the one and the only Redeemer. And that in the end, He will stand on the earth because He is the victorious one over sin and over suffering and over Satan himself. And He, Jesus, will be the last one standing. The story of Job reminds us that whatever life may throw at us, no matter how senseless the suffering may seem to be, through it all and in the end, our hope in Jesus Christ can and will remain steadfast. We can say with Job, I know that my Redeemer lives. I myself will see Him with my own eyes. How my heart yearns within me. The Savior. Jesus Christ, which brings us to our final main point, and that's the sense. As we wrap up every lesson, I want to offer the sense of each of these books of the Bible. In other words, what practical take-home lessons can we apply to our daily lives from the book? In today's case, what instructions or applications can we glean from the book of Job? Well, obviously, Job's story is all about suffering and how we respond to it. Especially when it doesn't make any sense. When it just doesn't seem fair. As we think of the lessons that we can learn from Job's experience and his interactions with his friends and with God, I think the sense of this book is really pretty simple. I'd sum it up this way. Basically, there are two ways that we can respond to suffering and evil in our lives. First, there's the bitter way. The bitter way. And this by far is the most popular response to suffering. When life isn't fair and doesn't make sense, it is in our nature to ask, why? Why me? Why now? Why this? Why? 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 
having an innate sense of justice, we want to find out who and what's at fault and blame. Assign responsibility, if you like a nicer word. In Job's case, he found no lack of people with opinions about his suffering. In grieving the tremendous loss that she faced, losing their family's wealth as well as her seven sons and three daughters, Job's wife asked him rather bitterly, Are you still maintaining your integrity? And then she told him, Curse God and die. This response is not at all unlike how many, dare I say most, people respond to suffering today. Job's wife's negative fatalistic approach represents a complete loss of faith and trust in God's goodness. I mean, after all, how could a good God make or even allow an innocent person to suffer? Why? In attempting to comfort Job, his three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, offered a different point of view. Instead of blaming God, they blamed Job himself. Their answer to the why question was to accuse Job of sinning in some way. Their big assumption was that if a person's wise and good, then God will reward him or her with prosperity. But if a person is foolish and evil, God will punish him or her with adversity. And however well-intentioned their arguments may have been, instead of encouraging Job, they actually discouraged him. And so as we read through the back-and-forth debates, we begin to see actually Job's despair increase. In Job 10, verse 1, he cries out, I loathe my very life, therefore I will give free reign to my complaint and speak out of the bitterness of my soul. In Job 21, verses 23 through 26, his despair is even more heaven. He says, one person dies in full vigor, completely secure and at ease, well nourished in body, bones rich with marrow. Another dies in bitterness of soul, never having enjoyed anything good. Then look how he concludes. Side by side they lie in the dust and worms cover them both. The worms crawl in, the worms crawl <laughs> And it all comes to a head in Job 27 and verse 2. I swear by the living Almighty God who refuses me justice and makes my life bitter. Obviously, Job's bitterness here is now directed at God himself as he cries out for answers to the why questions and wonders why God isn't being fair and just. In fact, he actually ends up challenging God. I sign now my defense. Let the Almighty answer me. Where are you, God? The bitter way is the wrong way to respond to suffering and evil. Asking the why question, trying to find out who and what is at fault and blame them, only leads to bitterness. Job, like most of us who have experienced suffering, diligently searches for answers as to why his suffering came and why it continued. And yet, to Job's credit, when we read the end of the story, we find that he actually rejected the counsel of his wife and his friends. In fact, he rhetorically repeats God's earlier question, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? And of course, the answer is that those who hide counsel without knowledge are the ignorant, 
the foolish, the misinformed, the liars, or some combination thereof. In fact, the Apostle Paul said this about them in 1 Timothy 1 and verse 7. They do not know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. Paul's trying to instruct us not to pay attention to such people and their uninformed opinions. The why of human suffering is largely a mystery. In fact, God Himself never answers the why question here in Job. God's response is simply to reveal to Job His power and wisdom as the creator and the sustainer of the universe. In essence, God reveals His character to Job and assures Job that no matter the suffering and evil, no matter the injustice, no matter the lack of sense, that He, God, can be trusted. Period. The bitter way is the wrong way to respond to suffering and evil. That's why Ephesians 4 and verse 31 tells us, Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you. No more why questions. Instead, we may choose the better way. The better way. This is the right way to respond to suffering and evil. When life isn't fair and doesn't make sense, we need to ask what? Not why, but what? What can I learn from this? What is God going to accomplish in me through this test and this trial? As hard as the truth may be, we need to hear it and believe it. In fact, Romans 28, 8 and verse 28 is the truth. Let's read it out loud together. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. That's the truth. The better way is the right way to respond to suffering and evil. It's to know and understand that even in the hardest of hard times, God loves us and is working for the good of those who love Him and are willing to trust Him. Now the Bible is very clear that God often uses suffering and evil. He allows it to test us. Proverbs 17, verse 3, the crucible for silver, the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests the heart. Isaiah 48, verse 10, see, I have tested you. I have tested you in the furnace, don't miss these words, the furnace of affliction. Isn't that a great term? James 1, verses 2-4, through 4, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work, so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And so as we deal with the matter of good and gracious God allowing Job to be tested in the furnace of affliction, we must believe that being infinitely good and perfect, God is incapable of doing anything evil or even to the slightest degree wrong. As a loving God, He loves us beyond our human comprehension. He is for us, not against us. More than we could possibly ever imagine, He only wants what is good and best for us. And that's why He allows us to suffer evil and injustice, to test us, to refine us, to help us become mature and complete, lacking in nothing, as James says. It's the what question. It's the better way. Now I need to make a statement here that might surprise you. Fill in the blanks there in your notes. God's primary concern is not to make us happy, 
but rather to make us holy. God's primary concern is not to make us happy, but to make us holy. In Job's case, God allowed him to suffer beyond what any of us have ever suffered or ever will suffer. But God had a greater purpose in this suffering, one that He actually never disclosed to Job. Nor does God reveal to Job His agreement with Satan. Did you notice that? He never mentions it to Job. I mean, essentially, God tells Job, I am God, I am sovereign, trust me. End of discussion. For Job, as evidenced by Job's declaration of his unrelenting faith in Job 13 and verse 15. We've got to read this verse out loud together. Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Hmm. Wow. Basically, Job says, in spite of my circumstances and experience to the contrary, I will trust in God's ultimate goodness to me. Folks, we are not even in control of our next breath. And oftentimes our trials bring this reality to a clearer focus for us. God is really and truly running His universe and imparting life to us at this very moment. And He alone is in control. The better way is the right way to respond to suffering and evil. When life isn't fair and doesn't make sense, we need to ask what? Not why, but what? What can I learn from this? What is God accomplishing in me through this test and trial? Pretty teacup, huh? If this teacup could talk to us today, maybe it would say something like this. You don't understand. I haven't always been a teacup. There was a time when I was red. And I was just clay. My master took me and rolled me and patted me over and over and over. And I yelled out, leave me alone. But he only smiled and said, not yet. Then I was placed on a spinning wheel. Suddenly I was spinning around and around and around. Stop it, I'm getting dizzy, I screamed. And the master only nodded and said, not yet. Then he put me in an oven. I've never felt such heat. I wondered why he wanted to burn me and I yelled and I knocked at the door and I could see him through the opening and I could read his lips as he shook his head and he said, yeah. <laughs> Finally the door did open. Whew. He put me up on a shelf and I began to cool. There, that's better, I said. When I was just beginning to feel normal again, he grabbed me and he brushed me and he painted me all over. The fumes were horrible. I thought I was going to gag. Stop it! Stop it! I cried. And he only nodded and said, Not yet. Then suddenly he put me back into another oven. Not the first one, but one twice as hot. I knew I was going to suffocate. I begged, I pleaded, I screamed, I cried. And all the time I could see him through the opening, shaking his head and saying, <laughs> and just when I knew there was no hope that I would ever make it, just when I was ready to give up, the door opened and he took me out and he placed me up on a shelf. And one hour later he handed me a mirror and said, look at yourself now. 
And I did. I was shocked. That's not me. It couldn't be me. I, I'm so beautiful. I want you to remember, he then said. I know it hurt to be rolled and padded, but if I would left you, you would have just dried up. I know it made you dizzy to spin around on that wheel, but if I had stopped, you would have crumbled. I know it hurt and it was hot and disagreeable in the oven, but if I hadn't put you there, you would have cracked. I know the fumes were bad when I brushed you and painted you all over, but you see, if I hadn't done that, there would have been no color in your life. And if I hadn't put you back in that second oven, you wouldn't survive very long, for you would not have been strong enough. But now you're a finished product. And now, you are what I had in mind when I first made you. We need to listen to the teacup. Because some of us today, I know, are going through the furnace of affliction. Some of you are going through some stuff right now that just doesn't, that doesn't make sense. And you're wondering, you're crying out, where are you God? What is happening? Why is this happening? What good could possibly come out of this? And God is saying, not yet. Hang in there. I'm not done with you yet. If you trust me, I'm going to make your life something beautiful beyond what you can imagine. And so you see, we have a choice. The better way or the bitter way. And the question is, which will we choose? Because the choice is ours. That's the sense of the book of Job. Route 66. As we're cruising through the 66 books of the Bible today, we focus on the book of Job, the structure, the story, the Savior, and the sense. And we'll continue our study on June the 9th, actually, with the book of Psalms. Now, I'm going to be gone the next two Sundays. Tom Griffith, who has preached here many times in the past, will be here both of those Sundays. I challenge you. Uh, you just love his pastor's heart. <laughs> and he'll share with you some good things. Now, there are 150 chapters, by the way, in the book of Psalms, so be glad that you've got a few weeks. In fact, if you read seven or eight chapters a day, over the next three weeks, you'll read through the Psalms before we come back to study it together. So enjoy the break from this series and take advantage of the longer time to read through the Psalms. Let's pray. Father God, <clears throat> Thank you for teaching us from this unique book today, the book of Job. Thank you that he suffered so that we could understand our suffering. And I pray that we would be asking the right questions today. Not the why question, but the what question. I pray that we would choose the better way, not the bitter way, in our response to suffering in our lives. And God, it just comes down to, you are God. You are sovereign. You are in control. And yes, we will 
trust you no matter what. Help us to do that, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.